Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. This week on The Research Beat, we welcome Patricia Manzano, PhD in Art and Architecture at Durham University. Welcome to The Research Beat. Today's guest is Patricia Manzano, PhD in Art and Architecture at the Zurbaran Center for Spanish and Latin American Arts at the University of Durham. Patricia, welcome to The Research Beat. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Could you give us an overview of your research, Patricia? Right. So as you mentioned, I'm doing a PhD in art history. I specialize in the Spanish Baroque. So I'm studying 17th century painter that is called uh, Juan Bautista Martinez del Mazo. And he's better known for being the student and son-in-law of Diego Velázquez, who is probably the most famous Spanish painter in history. Very, very interesting. So who exactly was Mazo? Right. So Mazo, he's not very well known. I'm going to start saying that. He's, of course, better known for being related to Velázquez. But Mazo was extremely talented and prolific. He practiced every genre possible, landscapes, portraits. He also did religious compositions and mythological paintings. And he was a very talented copist at the time. Apart from his art career, he also had a career at court, and he was the art teacher to the heir to the throne, Baltasar Carlos. And on a biographical note, we don't really know that much about Mazo. We don't know, for example, where he was born, and we have a rough date of birth, so around 1612. He married three times. The first wife was, of course, Velázquez's daughter, and he died in 1667, so around 55 years old. So tell us why Mazo is so interesting and so important to study. Well, to me, there are so many, well, there are so many studies about Velázquez, right? He's, mm. people consider him a genius, he absolutely was. And so he's, he's been in countless exhibitions. Every year we publish books about Velázquez, he's everywhere. But Mazo, not so much. And to me, it's just impressive how this big part of Velázquez's life, who was his son-in-law and the best student that he ever had and a close collaborator has just been completely erased from history. So I think we can't really have a complete understanding of Velázquez unless we study Mazo first. Absolutely. Velázquez and Mazo, two extremely important men. Can you just paint us a picture of the world they lived in, this fascinating world of the Spanish Baroque? So the Baroque was a world of contrast. We talk about the Baroque as roughly the 17th century, which is known also as the golden age of culture, because of course, literature, music, theater, it all flourished in the 17th century. In art especially, the painters turned towards naturalism, rejecting the idealized beauty of the mannerism and the Renaissance. And of course, painters were still receiving influence from Italy and Flanders, but to me, the 17th century means a complete revival of Spanish painting and sculpture with great names such as Rivera, Murillo, Zurbarán, La Roldana, and of course Velázquez. But on the other hand, it was extremely unstable in terms of economics and social and political instability. 
So at this time, there were two big patrons of the arts, the church and the crown. Mapa Velázquez worked for the crown. And it was a great time for the arts in Spain, especially because Philip IV, the king of Spain, was one of the biggest collectors at the time with Charles I of England. So the taste of Spain of collectors before that had been mostly based in Italian and Flemish art. But Philip IV starts commissioning paintings to more Spaniards. And, and that is when they really start to shine, the, the Spanish painters of the time, including, of course, Velázquez Amazo. It's interesting that you mentioned Charles I, actually, because he got into a bit of trouble for his love of art and eventually lost his head. <laughs> but this world of the Baroque is very exciting, very vivid, the discovery of new ideas, literature and art flourishing. Velázquez obviously had a prominent position in this world. But how do both men fit into the world? Were they very high in society? Oh, that's a very good question. I could go on about this forever. So one of Velázquez's life ambitions was to become a knight. Because, for example, in Italy, painters were starting to be recognized as intellectual artists, like mm. architects or mathematicians. Whereas in Spain, art was still pretty much an official, like, manual labor. And so Velázquez's life ambition was to become a knight so that painting could be recognized as one of the higher arts. And at the end of, the, of his life, he managed to become a knight of the Order of Santiago, lying through his teeth, I will say, because he had none of the conditions to become a knight. But I don't think Matho was that ambitious. Matho was happy being, you know, a painter. Do you think that Mazo's lack of ambitions may have led to the fact that today he's not so well known as Velázquez, who was really trying to promote himself? Probably, honestly. And I would just say that Matho's relationship to Velázquez was both a blessing and a curse. So, of course, Matho benefited from that relationship from the beginning. But I think Velázquez's genius has just overshadowed Matho in every possible way. And that is why today he's not that very well known. Also because he was a copist and there's this stigma against copies because art historians don't consider them that interesting, to be honest. But that mindset is beginning to change. And we are seeing more and more studies about copies and copies in early modern art. We'll pick up on the notion of copies a bit later because it's actually okay. a really interesting field. But you mentioned there the relationship between Mazo and Velázquez. So tell us exactly how Mazo came into Velázquez's life. We are not really sure. We don't know anything about Mazo until 1631, so when he was about 20 years old. Mm -hmm. But the first records of Mazo are of his marriage to Francisca, precisely mm -hmm. in that year. So we think that Mazo must have started working with Velázquez in 1631, when Velázquez returned from his first trip to Italy. But we don't know, nothing, we don't know anything about Mazo's early life, so we don't really know how the two men met. So Francisca was Velázquez's daughter? Yes. And Mazo married her? Yes, correct. And so came into the family of Velázquez. Velázquez was obviously extremely important. How did that relationship then change Mazo's life? Do we know anything about that? Well, part of the wedding gifts, to call them that, was that Matho would get an administrative career at court. So he was not only a painter, he had other offices. So of course, he, Velázquez is benefiting Matho from the start. And then Matho took on the position as head of court painters when Velázquez died. Also because of that relationship, they worked closely together in the decoration of several royal palaces. 
So it was not just beneficial for the art, Matho was also highly influential at the time. And it was, of course, because he was related to the head painter of Philip IV. We see a lot of similarities, actually, between the two. As you just said, Mazo became head of the court painters, which mm -hmm. obviously is an incredibly prominent position. So it's so interesting that he has been lost to history in many respects. Patricia, tell us about Mazo's most famous or interesting paintings. Let's really look closely at his work and what kinds of ideas he embodies. For you, what are the most interesting paintings of Mazo? So I would say the family of the artist and the view of Zaragoza. So I can talk about them a bit if you want. So I'm going to start with the family because I think it's what most people have in mind when they think of Mazo. This is one of his last paintings. This was made around 1665, so a couple of years before the painter died. And it's an extremely weird composition. It's one of the only three group portraits of 17th century Spain. One of the other two being Las Meninas, which is, of course, the main reference for Mazo here. And we have in this painting, in the foreground, all of Mazo's children connected, while we see a painter working in the background on a portrait of one of the Spanish princesses, the Princess Margarita, who is also the protagonist of Las Meninas. So we are trying very hard to identify all the children in the foreground, because it's not easy. Matho, as I said, had about nine or ten children. They are not all accounted for. Three wives. So, you know, it's a complicated family dynamic. Mm. And then for centuries, Scholars have been debating on whether the painter in the background is Mazo or Velázquez, because the figure looks very, very closely to the self-portrait of Velázquez in Las Meninas. But of course, you know, it's it, it's a painter. His back is to the viewer and he's dressed in black. So we don't have a lot to go on from that. But uh, this painting was made after Velázquez was dead. I think there's no reason to doubt that Mazo is actually the painter mm -hmm. in the painting. And this is what we call in art meta-painting, because mm. we've got paintings inside a painting. So it's a very complex composition as well. And what Matthew is describing here, it's of course his family, but he's using family in the Latin sense of the word, because we also have a portrait of Philip IV, for example, and a Roman bust that links into classical antiquity. So mm. Matthew is including himself in the family of the king as well as servants to the crown. Wow. Do you think Mazo was influenced by Velázquez in this idea of putting himself inside the painting in some way? Absolutely. The Las Meninas where Velázquez paints himself, painting, like working on a canvas, is a clear model to the family of the artist. There is no doubt about that. And how about the view of Zaragoza? Yes, so the view of Zaragoza was painted in 1647, and this was something that Baltasar Carlos commissioned um, to Mazo. So he wanted a view of the city of Zaragoza after Mazo had painted another city view. And Mazo was known at the time for his skill at painting small figures. So this is, on the foreground, you get the, the riverbank of the city of Zaragoza with lots of small figures of all social classes, You've got people on boats, beggars, churchmen, noblemen, women enjoying their walk. So it's really, it's a really fun testimony of the society of the time. And this painting has kind of a tragic backstory because mm. while Baltasar Carlos was in Zaragoza, he was only 16 and he died. 
and he was he was the heir to the throne, so he was the, the big hope of the Spanish monarchy. And when Carlos dies, Mazo stops working on this painting because he thought there was you know no point anymore in finishing. And chroniclers from the time tell us that Philip IV himself asked Mazo to finish the painting. And if you look closely at the painting on the right on the lower right side there is a stone that tells you the story about how Baltasar Carlos commissioned the painting and Philip IV was the one to ask Mathel to finish it. That's a tragedy and yes. also very very interesting. These are two completely different styles of painting. We have on the one hand the family of the artist which is presumably a very personal and intimate project yes. from Mazo. And on the other hand, the view of Saragossa, which was a commission and shows a much broader picture of the whole life of the working city. On a painting like The Family of the Artist, what was the reason for painting something like this? Was it just personal motivation on the part of the artist or was there some profit to gain from creating something like that? That's a very good question. And so painters didn't usually paint for themselves. Mm -hmm they always had the profit at mind. But this is, as you said, extremely intimate. And we know that the painting stayed in the family even after Mathel died. So I think in this case, Mathel probably made a painting for himself. It's so curious to see how these paintings that may have been undertaken as personal projects then survive through the ages. And later they may become, as in this case, the most iconic of the painter's works rather than the ones that they were being paid to do and maybe were really desired and had high prestige at the time. Patricia, can you tell us about Mazo's style? What distinguished him from other artists and what were his virtues as a painter? Well, the thing about Mazo is he was indistinguishable from other artists. I think <laughs> about Mazo as a bit of a chameleon because he was such a good copies. He could imitate perfectly the style of Titian and Rubens and Van Dyck and any of the other artists he imitated. And of course, his style was very similar to Velázquez in the loose brushstrokes, the color palette, the color over line style. So Mazo didn't have a specific proper style on his own, but he painted in a very similar way to Velázquez. This actually leads into my next question, which is why was he forgotten about for such a long time? And I suppose it could have something to do with his dedication to being a copyist and his skill in that area. That is certainly one of the reasons. Also, we need to understand that in the 17th century, these paintings were not public. They would only have been seen by a very, very limited number of people. And it is not until the 19th century that these paintings go, most of them, to the Prado and to the first public museums in Europe. And that is when Velázquez and Mato really get, you know, international traction. And the 19th century is also when scholars start working on Velázquez's catalogue and his corpus of work. So they start to distinguish what was made by Velázquez and what wasn't. And that is when the story of Velázquez's genius is created because, you know, genius is like the figure of the lone genius is a construct from the 19th century. And so what these scholars are doing is that they're attributing the best works to Velázquez and those of lesser quality to Mazo. And there's not a lot of reasoning behind it. Even the view of Zaragoza, which is signed by Mazo, scholars are saying that, you know, it's too good to be by Mazo. So that is, <laughs> that, that is something you can actually read on the uh, publications by these people. Like, no, this painting can't be by Mazo because it's too good. 
And so the family of the artist, for example, another scholar attributes to Velázquez saying it's even better than Las Meninas. But now we know that there's no way Velázquez could have painted that because, you know, he would have been dead at the time. So that is why we still carry this load from the 19th century, thinking that math is a bad painter. But the fact that Mathos paintings can be attributed to Velázquez, I think, is testimony of his skill. And it mm. should say that if the attribution between their works is interchangeable, it means that they were at least at the same technical level. Absolutely. Was Mazo well known in his own time? Absolutely, yes. He was a big part of the art market of the time, I think, because you can find his name in the most important private collections of the mm. time. And then we have biographers that mention Mazo, like Palomino, Lazaro Díaz del Valle, who also mentioned Mazo's skills in what I was saying, painting small figures and painting portraits of the queen. So Mazo was a very well-known figure at the time. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. I'd love to focus on this notion of followers and copyists because it's a very interesting one. Do you think that Mazo was making a conscious decision to be a follower of Velasquez? Or perhaps for some reason, did he not want to strike out on his own? That is a good question. And I have to say, I don't really know. It's interesting because we don't know if Mazo had made it out on his own. Would he have been more famous today? Or would his name be lost to history completely? I think being a follower of Velázquez was certainly beneficial for Mazo's position. He was a privileged painter in Madrid. And of course, you know, he was, I think, one of the best jobs you could get as a painter in 17th century Madrid was as court painter to the crown. So that must have been Mazo's main reasoning for joining Velázquez in, in the atelier. It's certainly very, very different to the situation today where art works very differently. And we don't have the same sets of followers. We don't have people setting out to copy the existing work because in some respects it's seen as plagiarism or imitation. But in this time in the Baroque age, this was actually a prestigious position. It was a very respectable thing and people desired paintings in the style of a particular artist. Uh, absolutely, yes. So the thing was that when a painting became popular, of course, there was only one of it. So if you wanted the same, you could have a copy made. And mm. we know that Mazo was the best copies of the time because his name appears in the inventories. Usually when you are looking at an inventory and you have a copy after Titian, for example, it says the death of Adonis, copy after Titian, that's it. But in Matho's case, we know in the inventories, it says that Matho was the copyist who made the painting. Wow. So that adds value. And that must have meant something in the 17th century because it was, it was not you know, valuable just to have a copy after Titian. The copy had to be made by Matho if you wanted the best of the best. That really marks him out as a talented copyist. Like you say, perhaps his talent was to be a chameleon and to copy the works of others well. Again, today, people can take a photograph of a famous painting or circulate it in all kinds of ways, but then it wasn't possible. The one painting was locked away in a particular place, 
And if you wanted a copy, you needed to commission it and have it painted. So Patricia, how have modern techniques in art history allowed Mazo's work to be distinguished from Velázquez's? Okay, so there's this AI project and it hasn't been used on Velázquez and Mazo yet, but I think it could be very beneficial in the future. Or maybe, you know, it'll put me out of a job. I don't know. I'm not sure yet. But there was this project in the National Gallery of London where a painting by Rubens, whose attribution was disputed, was studied by AI. And it was determined that the painting was actually not made by Rubens, probably somebody in his workshop. I'm not very sure of how this works. I'm going to be honest. This technology is beyond me. But we are seeing projects like this more and more often that mm -hmm. I think, you know, could really be beneficial when studying Mathos and Velázquez's paintings just to distinguish whether the painting was made by whom, basically. If you set aside modern projects like AI, how would an art historian work out and untangle a mystery like this? If there's some confusion between Velázquez and Mazo, and many scholars still think that some of Mazo's paintings are actually by Velázquez, how do you as an art historian try to prove that that's not true? Lots of studying, I'm going to say. It's, connoisseurship is not an exact science. People train all of their lives for it. It's very, very complicated. And, you know, there is no guarantee that you're right. That is the first thing that you have to know when you're trying to attribute a painting. There is mm. absolutely no way to know unless, you know, the painting is signed or you use sprays or other kind of conservation techniques that are very expensive and most museums can't afford. So it's very difficult to try to attribute paintings with 100% certainty. But what we usually do is lots of archival research, lots of reading, and lots of time looking at paintings. I guess it's helpful in Mazo's case that you find his name in the records and on the paintings, like you said, because that gives you some clues and that gives you something to work with. I mean, after you've been studying a painter for a long time, you start to recognize little things, you know, but yes, sure. it's always helpful when we have his name in inventories, his name on the paintings, but as I said, he only signed three paintings. Mm. out of, I don't know, about 200 that I've catalogued, only three of them are signed. So it's not, it's not an, a lot of help. Can you give us an example of one of those little identifying points that makes you feel that you are looking at something that's Mazo's and not Velasquez's or anybody else's? One thing that is not that little, I'll admit, is the inclusion of references to Las Meninas, especially in Mazo's uh, later work life. He, mm -hmm. he does a lot of that. He includes Charles II with the Bucaro that Margarita has in Las Meninas. So that is an absolute identifier. Also, I think the hands, like you can really look at the hands and think, oh, this was made by Mazo. Mm -hmm. And it's the little things like the curtains or the carpets and portraits, the little figures in the foreground of landscapes and hunting scenes. Yeah, little identifiers. It's very difficult to explain. <laughs> It's completely different from a lot of other disciplines in that you're seeking clues and tiny, sometimes tiny details in the past. Some research tries to take people forward in a very obvious way, but some research looks to the past and tries to discover new things about the past. What are you discovering about Mazo in your own research, Patricia? So I think one of the most important contributions of my thesis will be the catalogue of works. 
which is going to be the most complete to date. So in three years, I've compiled about 200 paintings by Matho, around 35 sketches and two drawings. Wow. So it's good because once we have a working corpus, people can expand it in time or revise it, disagree with me, agree with me, I don't know. But I'm really looking forward to putting it out there so that mm. we can start working on Matho properly with a corpus of works. So you're setting a standard, essentially. Well, I'm not the first one, but uh, yes. <laughs> it sounds like it will be a really useful resource for other art historians in the future, because as you mm -hmm. said, they may disagree with it, but at least it's there. At least there's something to go from and a starting point that makes it easier to discover more in the future. Exactly. And, you know, that that's what science is for. Make discoveries. People will not always agree, but looking forward to you know, reading all the criticism I can get. <laughs> Another thing I'm very excited about is that I think I found Mathos self-portrait. But wow. um, on this topic, my leads are sealed until the thesis is published. This is very exciting because we don't really know what Mathos looks like. The only self-portrait that we have is the one where his back is turned in the family of the artist. Okay, a mysterious secret that maybe we can hear about in a future episode of The Research Beat. What resources and techniques do you use to make these discoveries? Well, as I said, archives are essential, although they are very frustrating because most of the time you're getting nothing out of hours of research. And then I just think looking at the material is essential. You have to go to museums, you have to look at these paintings in the flesh. Because, of course, we now have the opportunity to work with photography, to work from home, from wherever, I'm working in Spanish art from the UK. Of course, I travel to Spain quite often because I'm Spanish, but you know, I still can work on Spanish art from Durham, which is fantastic. But at some point you have to really go there and look at these paintings and spend some time just staring into a canvas. And in your personal research, do you make use of anything like the AI programming that you mentioned or any pieces of technology? Is there any crossover between science and art history? Well, digital humanities are a very hot topic right now. The thing is, mm -hmm. I don't really have access to that kind of technology. I, don't, I think it, a very limited number of people do. So for now, no. But hopefully in the future, you know, technology will be a tool of our history. Indeed. Patricia, what inspires you as an art historian? I think, I'm going to be honest, I think I have the best job in the world. <laughs> I'm... I'm always surrounded by art. Mm. I get paid to look at pretty things. It's fantastic. It's the best. Just I love art so much. Going to a museum to me is therapeutic. I encourage everyone to go to a museum. Even if you don't know anything about art, just go have a look around. It'll make you feel better. <laughs> I have the same attitude that it's open for everybody. It's something for everybody to enjoy. And if your passion is art, then for you to be surrounded by art every single day, to really submerge yourself in this world is something wonderful. What is your best advice for aspiring art historians? I would say don't be afraid. Fortune favors the brave, definitely. <laughs> I've talked to some aspiring art historians lately and they're all very mm. worried about, you know, career prospects, which I get. It's a scary world out there, but I don't think we have less opportunities than engineering students or 
you know, medical doctors. I just think if you're passionate about what you do, you'll find a way. I think this is a very good point. I think a lot of people may think that with other research subjects, there's a clear path to success afterwards, or at least the path is set. They know where they're going. And perhaps some people hesitate when it comes to a subject like art history because they wonder, where could this lead me? But your advice is that it's best to follow your passion. Absolutely. And, and do what you really care about, which is what you're doing. I mean, yes. You See, this is why I think I have the best job in the world. I love it. And of course, mm. it's not always easy. Sometimes it's very boring or it's very long hours. But I think I'd be miserable doing <laughs> anything else. So just follow your passion. I think that's wonderful advice that people could apply to all areas of their life. What other art historians, uh, writers or academics really inspire you and are you following at the moment? So for the English speaking people out there that are interested in art history of Spain or early modern art history in general, I'm going to recommend two scholars. One is Jonathan Brown, um, which recently passed away, but I think he's one of the most influential Hispanists um, out there. And he's got a book that's called Painting in Spain from 1500 to 1700, which I think is a very good way to introduce yourself to the topic if you want to know a little more. Mm -hmm. And then there's another scholar called Svetlana Albers, who wrote a book called The Art of Describing. And this book is about Dutch art, but it's one of those books that really teach you how to look at things, how to read a painting. And I think it's absolutely essential if you are interested in early modern art. So I'd recommend those two. Fantastic. Patricia, I'd like to leave our listeners with an impression of Mazo and perhaps other painters like him who have been unsung for hundreds of years. Why do you think it's important for us to be aware of these unknown artists and their work? Okay, that's a very good question. I'm going to say, you know, it came to a point where you think about Spanish art and six names come to mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's a world outside those six names. We have to root for the women artists, the artists of color, the underdogs, basically, like Mazo or any of the other paintings that worked under the shadow of very influential figures. But, you know, they were still there. They're very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And they also have a right to be recognized and, and looked at in museums. And so just to diversify, basically, and to get out of the boredom of just looking at six names or having six names in mind when you think about something. I completely agree. I think the work and research that you're doing contributes deeply to our understanding and the fullness of our understanding of the past, which is exceptionally important. Finally, Patricia, how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about what you do? I am on Twitter and Instagram. They can Google my name, Plastorm University, and my staff page will come up with my email on it. And I am also the convener of the Mayus Workshop, which is a group of Hispanics where people can present their work in a very friendly environment. And we are interested in literature, music, art, and well, any kind of discipline in the humanities. So have a look. We have a blog and we're also on Twitter. Amazing. Patricia? Thank you so much for joining the research beat. Such a fascinating story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 
for more on Patricia, you can find her on Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn, or search for The Myers Workshop. And to listen to more research like hers, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemit at audemit.io, or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram.